Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, 18 to 22. One of the things that I discovered um, working in the secular world for, for some time, um, one of the jobs that I did was to coach employees and, and train them to function within an organization. And, and what I discovered uh, about that is that the vast majority of people, it's not everybody, but the vast majority of people really just want to be successful. The vast majority of people that you coach and teach and train, the reason that we can do that with most people is because in the end, they, they just want to do a good job. That's not everybody. All right. And it seems like, as time goes by, it's becoming less and less the norm <laughs> and more the exception. But, overall speaking, generally speaking, it's true that most people just really want to be successful. They want to produce fruit in their lives. They want to do a good job. They want people to think well of them. Um, it's the reason incentives in work actually work, is because people want to do what's right. They want to be successful. They want to do good. In our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is going to turn to a fig tree and curse it, and it's going to wither. And then he's going to turn to the disciples, and he's going to explain to them how prayer works. I'm going to confess to you that this passage is going to seem very strange, especially in the context of what's going on. It's going to seem like an oddity, but this passage is actually somewhat of a parable of what's going on in the passages around it, and so I only hope that I'm able to explain that this morning. So let's look at the passage that is before us, Matthew 21, 18 to 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, that is Jesus, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but lead, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We've got our work cut out for us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the text that is before us is difficult. It's challenging. Um, it's hard to understand. And so we pray for help. Give us wisdom to see words that are on the page in front of us, take them to heart, to understand them, to apply them to our own lives, that we may be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just remind you of the context so far. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem, and they've 
he's been leading a kind of a caravan of people. They've been coming from Galilee, and they've come all the way into Jerusalem, and he's coming in for Passover week. The rest of the book of Matthew really is going to be about one week of Jesus' life. And so almost every uh, Sunday is, is, one, is one day virtually. And so uh, Jesus has been leading this group of people. The, the disciples are, are, have been gathered around him. This crowd has been gathered around him as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they're shouting Hosanna and the highest and all this. They've, they've come from Galilee. They've watched his whole ministry virtually in the northern area of Israel. And they've come into Jerusalem and they're shouting. And then Jesus gets off the donkey and he walks into the temple, and he cleanses the temple. And in the temple, we saw that there is prayerlessness. And, he, and, and Jesus is really mad about it. He begins to turn over the tables. He says, look, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. And so we saw last week that he's rejecting this inauthentic form of worship from the Jews and he's turning to the children who are calling him Son of David and praising him and saying he's Hosanna, save us, Son of David. And he's accepting their praise on behalf of God. Now all of these events that we're reading about have this kind of familiar ring to them because this last week of Jesus' life is probably the most familiar in all the Gospels to us. And we're, we're familiar with this most significant week that took place in human history. Now, some of the passages may be more or less familiar to you, and I'm not sure where this particular passage falls in that line. The withering of the fig tree and Jesus' teaching on prayer. Now, this, this event only occurs in Matthew and Mark. Those are the only two Gospels where this event actually occurs. And in Mark, this event is separated by a couple of days. So on, in Mark, on one day, Jesus curses a fig tree, and on the next day, the disciples notice that it is withered, and he teaches them on prayer. So it's in two different days. Mark is paying really close attention to the chronology of what happened during that week of last week of Jesus' life. But Matthew, as we have seen, as we've read through this gospel, is less concerned about chronology. He's not really particular about when the events occurred. And so Matthew actually smashes all of these stories together in six verses or five verses or whatever it is. I think that's important because sometimes the difference between gospel accounts can tell you the point that the gospel writer is actually making to you and wants you to understand and see. We do this naturally with the epistles. When we read through Paul's letters and things like that, we think, okay, Paul is making a point to us. He wants, us, he wants to tell us something. We think about this sometimes in the Old Testament prophets. Okay, the prophet is making a point to us. But sometimes when we read the gospel accounts, we think of them as just a history. Well, he's just trying to tell us what happened. No, they too are trying to make a point to you. They're trying to help you understand something about Christ. Not just see what happened and what he did, but actually make a point to you. That's perhaps never more apparent than it is right here in this passage. That this account, Matthew is trying to make a point to us. To help us see something very important about the withering of the fig tree. And what that fig tree stands for. 
and what Jesus is actually compelling his disciples to do and be when he teaches them about prayer. Now, if we were to just stumble across these five verses without any regard to the context, they're going to seem strangely out of place. I mean, if we read the account, he goes and turns over the tables in the temple. In the subsequent accounts, he's going to go back into the temple, and he's going to start preaching against the Pharisees. He's going to start telling parables against them. There's going to be some big-time confrontation that's going to happen. And here in the middle of it is Jesus withering a fig tree and then telling them, hey, if you want to, you too can wither fig trees and you can throw mountains into oceans. It's only by seeing this passage in the context of the ones that are around it that we don't take this out of context, but we actually put it in its context. This passage has everything to do with what has just taken place in the temple. And in this passage, there's two very obvious divisions that I want us to see, and then we're going to talk about uh, and put them together and, and understand how this, what, what this is meaning in the context. The first thing that I want you to see here is that fruitlessness brings Judgment. Fruitlessness brings judgment. Look at verse 18. He says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. I will confess to you right now, I am not an arborist. I'm not someone who takes care of trees. I don't even own a fig tree. I've never taken care of one. However, without even being an arborist, we know, because Mark tells us in 11.13, he says, it was not the season for figs. Right there at the end of that passage, he says, it was not the season for figs. Mark tells us that. So we know, without knowing anything about trees, that it wasn't the season for figs which seems very strange. This was the time of Passover. So for us, think of Easter, right? Sometime during the spring. It can occur anywhere between March 22nd to April 25th. So it's sometime in the spring. It's not the season for figs because they don't start to ripen and fall to the ground until late summer and early fall. And so we know this is clearly not the time for figs. Well, it seems really strange that Jesus would walk up to a fig tree when it's not the time for figs see no figs on it, which there aren't supposed to be, and curse it because it doesn't have any figs. Right? Am I, not, am I the only one that finds that a little strange? All right. You can nod. It's okay. We can nod. Now, apparently, with fig trees, early in the spring, they put out their leaves. And on, attached to these leaves become the buds of what will eventually become figs. So, as a general rule... If you see a fig tree in leaf, that means that it is a fruitful tree. It's not dead. And if you walk up to it, you can see these little green bulbs that are beginning to sprout on the branches. And those green bulbs will eventually get bigger. I see Clint nodding, and he's, he's, he's a, he knows way more than I do. But they will start to get bigger. They will start to ripen. They will start to eventually fall to the ground and become full figs that you can eat. Apparently, you can actually go up to these little buds, you can pull them off, and you can eat these little unripened 
buds. They're probably not going to be very good, but if you are in dire straits and you're in intense hunger, you could eat them and they would be safe. I would check with somebody else before you take my word for it. Um, <laughs> now, you may be asking yourself, what's with the horticulture lesson? Well, this passage is certainly short. It's only five verses. But we have all the necessary details here for us to understand why Jesus does what He does. Now, it's not the season for figs. We know that. It's early spring. However, Jesus sees this tree, He says in Matthew, having only leaves. And so, which tells us that the fig tree is advertising itself to everyone else as having all the conditions necessary to produce fruit. We also know, because it tells us that Jesus is hungry. He is such a person in dire straits for food. So he is willing to eat this unripened fig. And so he goes up to try to grab some unripened fig fruit off this tree at this time. However, upon further inspection of the tree, he finds that it does not produce fruit at all. So, in spite of having leaves, in spite of advertising itself as being fruitful, it's fruitless. But remember, everything connects. Every word in the Bible matters. It has a purpose. The Holy Spirit superintended every word from Matthew's pen that he wrote down, or Paul for that matter, or Mark, or Luke, or John, or anybody else for that matter. So, what are the odds that Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple? And then the Holy Spirit says, okay, Matthew, now let's teach him a horticulture lesson. Slim. This actually connects back to the previous passage, but we have to understand something first. This fig tree stands for something. What is it? What does it mean? We have to understand something first. Through some of the prophets of the Old Testament, God has compared faithfulness in Israel to the fruit of a fig tree. Faithfulness in Israel to the fruit of a fig tree. Take, for example, Hosea 9.10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Just a few verses later in Hosea 9, 16-17, he says, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. So he, he's not just comparing Israel to a fig tree. He's comparing Israel's faithfulness to that of a tree. When Israel is faithful, it's like finding figs. It's like finding grapes. They produce fruit when they are faithful. When they are faithless, they're like a barren fig tree or a barren vine. Let's look at one more example. Micah 7, 1-6. Woe is me, 
For I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered, as when uh, the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do, it, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great uh, utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave uh, it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So here again, the prophet and I realize prophecy sometimes can be very difficult to read, but the prophet uh, goes to seek godly fellowship in Israel. And what does he find? He finds it's like a fig, fig tree that's been plucked clean. There's no figs on it. I was hungry. I was hungry for godly fellowship. But there were no figs to be found. Does that sound familiar at all? The godly, he says, have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Now, interestingly, though, the description that he gives of this time of faithlessness in Israel is in verse six. He says, "Son treats." Go, go back to that passage if you've got it. If you've got it up on the screen, um, so that they can see it in verse six. Son treats father with contempt. Daughter against mother, daughter-in-law and against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, if that verse sounds a little bit familiar, it's because Jesus actually quotes that verse earlier in Matthew 10. He says that about his own ministry and about the disciples' ministry that they're going out into. He sends them out in Matthew chapter 10, and he tells them this about his own ministry. That's what it's going to be like. What you're about to see is father set against son, son set against father, daughter set against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are going to be of his own household. This is going to characterize my ministry. And as you go out there, disciples, that is what you are going to see. He's telling them, way back in chapter 10, that if they align themselves with Him, if they align themselves with the prophet, they're going to experience a similar Israel to what Micah experienced. They're going to go out amongst the Jews and they are going to find faithlessness. It's not going to be there. They're going to hear the gospel message, many of them. The gospel message about the Messiah and they're going to reject it. As Israel, who is confronted with the very Messiah, hears the gospel, they're going to be found faithless in many cases. In the next few weeks, we're going to see a few parables that Jesus is going to tell in the temple about the faithlessness 
and the fruitlessness of the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish leadership. And Jesus will say in Matthew 21, 43 to 45, just a a few passages from now, He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. The chief priests and the Pharisees are accused of of not producing the fruit of the kingdom. Why? Because he says right there, they don't believe in the cornerstone. They don't believe in, in Jesus. So they're out. They're cursed. But this isn't the first time they've heard this. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of the book of Matthew, they were warned that this would happen when the Messiah comes. Remember that crazy man, John the Baptist? That crazy little guy in the River Jordan who's baptizing people from the wilderness. He's got camel hair and he eats locusts and he's kind of strange. He's baptizing people in the river and he looks on the bank of the river and he sees this same group of people on the bank of the river, and he says something very odd to them that we may have just looked over when he said it. He says in Matthew 3, 7, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's almost like Matthew gave us this detail about John and the river back in chapter 3, so that when we got to Matthew 21, we didn't look at the cursing of a fig tree merely as some sort of miracle or horticulture lesson instead we would read it as it's intended it's a commentary it's a parable on the current state of unbelieving Jews and their leadership Jesus has just come from the temple full of life full of promise full of advertised piety, and yet without any fruit. The temple courtyards are prayerless, he says. The temple courtyards are intended to be places of prayer, and he doesn't find it there. On the outside, you have this glorious temple, this huge that's majestic. People are streaming into the city. The city goes from an estimated 30,000 to 160,000 or more in a single week. And they all come to the temple. And what do they find there? A bazaar. The New York Stock Exchange. And no prayer anywhere. 
They don't even have the first fruits of a heart for the kingdom of God, which would be prayer. They don't even have the first fruits of it. Nothing. And what message is being sent when the Lord of the temple approaches the fruitlessness of the temple and curses it by calling it a den of robbers? Or what happens when he curses an actual fig tree and says, may may no fruit ever come from you again? Fruitlessness brings judgment. For the fig tree, it's immediate. But his cursing of the temple, as we will see, is going to come to fruition in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. Fruitlessness brings judgment. Second, faithfulness produces fruit. Faithfulness produces fruit. Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now we've talked about this before, because back in 17, Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will, it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. This this particular passage trips a lot of us up and is is very difficult to kind of work through. But, and if we're not careful, then we'll we'll have to, if we're not careful to understand the the context and what, what Jesus is saying here, then we'll have people on TV telling us that if you just name it and claim it and just pronounce this is going to happen in faith, then it will happen for you. And you notice that during the whole COVID-19 pandemic, these people are not walking the halls of the COVID unit in any of the hospitals, just naming and claiming healing for any of these people. And if anything should shut them up, it should be a worldwide pandemic, like what we've been under. Like they should have no more followers anymore, but uh, that's free. Um, but if, we, if we're not careful, then what we'll see is we've got to squeeze faith from the tips of our toes to the top of our head. And if we squeeze it hard enough and we just, we just pronounce God doing something in front of us, then poof, it will happen like, like we've just rubbed the genie's lamp or something. Well, we know that's not what Jesus means because that's false. That doesn't actually happen. right? Nobody actually does that. Or else COVID-19 would be gone a long time ago. There was a lot of people that tried that. First, let's understand what Jesus is saying about prayer to the disciples. Remember, he just cursed a fig tree. And it, and it withered. And that cursing tells us several things. It tells us first well, that he's Lord, right? It tells us that, surely. If he cursed a fig tree and it immediately withered, he, he's Lord, That also tells us that what he's just done in the temple, he has the authority to do. Because he is a Lord, he is the Lord of the temple, and his cursing of the fig tree proves that his kingdom has power. 
It's a demonstration to his disciples he does indeed have access to the power of God. And so what he says about the temple is true because he's just cursed his fig tree and it withered immediately. So they want to know naturally, how did that fig tree wither? That's amazing. Can you show us how to do that? And so Jesus answers to them, faith. That's how. Faith. That's how the tree withered. He had faith in God. If you have faith and do not doubt, he says, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but you'll throw mountains into the sea. Let me ask you, how often have you found a fig tree in your path that just really needed some withering? I'm not being metaphorical here, I'm being literal. How many times have you literally walked upon a fig tree and thought, this really needs to be withered? Be withered. How many of you really thought that? How many of you have walked on a, on a landscape and you thought to yourself, you know, this landscape would be a lot prettier if this mountain were in the Pacific Ocean? Let me just pray that God will move this mountain into the sea. Has that ever been what you've needed? Probably not. Well, then what does Jesus mean? You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but you'll throw mountains in the sea. I've never needed to do any of those things. And I can almost tell you with relative confidence that I'm never going to wither a fig tree unless someone asks me to take care of it. So Jesus is obviously using the fig tree and the mountain as a symbol for what they're about to do and the kind of resources they have at their disposal. The kind of resources that they have access to. Now, I think we have to understand a few things. First is about prayer. And second is about our purpose on this earth to even understand what in the world Jesus is talking about here. In the book of Matthew, Jesus' main comments on prayer, most of them come from Matthew chapter 6, where he gives the Lord's Prayer. But his comments on prayer are pretty brief. But he says something very important in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 6. And if you're not careful, you just miss it. He says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's telling them this because they're tempted to heap up a lot of phrases. He says, don't do that. Don't, don't just go on talking about phrases to God. He, he knows what you need before you ask him. There is a fundamental premise to prayer that Jesus underlines here. And that is that prayer is communicating your needs to God. Very basically. Prayer is a lot of things. But very basically, it is communicating your needs to God. Now, I think the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, and the rest of the Bible for that matter, are going to back this up. But we have a warning from James in the book of James, verses 2 to 3, where he says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. 
prayer, then, is not communicating your wants to God. So it's communicating your needs to God. It's not communicating your wants to God. Right? You want to spend it on yourselves, on your own selfish passions. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do I know what is a need and what is a want? Isn't it ironic that one of the first lessons that we try to teach our children, we don't even know the answer to? When it comes to us and our prayer life with God, we're not sure what is our need and what, our, what is our want. Well, let's keep going and see if we might be able to figure some of this out. Now, we also know from our passage this morning that the Bible frequently caveats prayer with, if you have faith and do not doubt. If you have faith and do not doubt. So we can also say that prayer is communication about our needs that comes from an absolute trust in God. Communication about our needs that comes from an absolute trust in God. That's what he means by faith in God. Is that you have an absolute trust that God is going to provide for those needs. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. What does he tell you? He knows what you need before you ask it. You don't have to heap up a bunch of empty words. He knows what you need before you ask it. Just ask it. You're expressing the utmost confidence. God is not persuaded by my verbosity, by my many words. He knows what I need. I'm just going to ask. Now, prayer. Communication about our needs that comes from an absolute trust in God. Now, I want you to think about who you are in Christ. So we're going to put a pin in prayer for just a second. I want you to think about who you are in Christ. Christ, we know throughout the gospel, has told us that he is establishing his kingdom. That is what he's here to do. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he tells us, on a number of occasions. He goes around, everywhere he goes, preaching about the kingdom. And it's a kingdom that he's inviting his disciples in, and anybody that follows after him is going to reign with him in his kingdom. Now, since I came to this church, three and a half years or more now, I have been preaching basically the same message. And if anybody's walked out of here and thought, that's the same message we heard last week. I know that. Yes, I've been preaching pretty much the same message. And it's this, that you and I, by virtue of Christ's atoning work for us, because of what Christ has done for us, we have had our citizenship transferred from the domain of darkness that we would call this world. Our citizenship has been transferred from here and it has been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Because of Christ's work, our citizenship has been transferred from this world to the kingdom of God. And that message, what I just said, is almost a line-for-line quote from the book of Colossians. And it was the first book that we studied when I got here. It was the first thing that I preached when I got here. Everything that we've done since then, we've gone through most of Matthew, we've gone through the first ten Psalms, we've done a series on worship, we've done a series on the church, and everything we've ever done on Wednesday night has all been toward that same message. I think the whole Bible is directed in that, that way. Please understand that when Jesus is setting up this kingdom, 
that he's inviting us into. He is recovering something that was lost in Adam. Do you understand that? He's recovering something that was lost in Adam. Adam and Eve were created as ambassadors of God's kingdom. They were created as vice regents to have dominion over the world. They're exercising dominion over God's created order on God's behalf. That's their job. That's what they're appointed to do. That's why they're made in the image of God. But what did they do? They sinned. Well, you can't exactly be vice regents, representatives of a holy God, if you've sinned, can you? Of course you can't. You have to die. So Christ comes, lives a sinless life, and is what Adam failed to be, and in his death, he atones for our sins, making us righteous in the courtroom of heaven and transferring our citizenship from the domain of darkness and into His kingdom. So Christ then has restored our heavenly citizenship. We are now vice regents again of God because of our inclusion in Christ's kingdom, because of our inclusion in His body. So therefore, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we're once again God's ambassadors of His kingdom. And as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, we have kingdom work to accomplish. That is, work on God's behalf. But herein lies our problem with prayer. I want you to imagine for a second you're a soldier. No one has trained you for your job. No one has even told you what you're supposed to do. You know that you have a commanding officer, and you know his name, but you've never really talked to him. And you've also really never heard him speak. You know some people in your platoon, some of which you really like and trust. Some you don't really know, you don't really trust and others you downright hate. One night, you're lying in your bed as a soldier, and a man comes up to you and wakes you up, and he says, come with me. So you get dressed, and he takes you out to the middle of a field. It's so quiet in this field that you can hear the field mice running around you. And he says to you, soldier, we're in war. And he gives you a walkie-talkie. And he says, anything you need for the war, just radio back to base, and we'll see that you have it. And then he gets in his Jeep and drives off. What do you need? You don't know. You need information. <laughs> You need something, but you don't really know what you need because you don't know what you're supposed to do. And worse, when you look around you, everything looks really peaceful. It's hard to believe that you're in the midst of war when you can hear the field mice scurrying around you. We have been brought into a kingdom and we've been told we're in war. And many of us live as though we are in peace. So, because of that, 
we don't know what we're supposed to do. But we have a gospel to proclaim. That's what we've been told. We, be, we have a gospel to proclaim. We have holy lives to live. We have an enemy that would devour us if given the opportunity. We have worries and anxieties that tear away at our faith in God because they shred the fabric of trust that we should have in Him. We are in the midst of a war and we are fighting for the kingdom of God. Our problem, especially here in America, and it's mine too, is that one, we don't understand the war that we're fighting. And two, we don't know the purpose that we as individual people, much less as a collective body of the church, actually serve in the kingdom of God. What am I supposed to do? But this is a problem because prayer is wartime communication. That's what it is. It's wartime communication. In addition to all those things that I just said it was, it is wartime communication. And Jesus has been telling us since the Lord's Prayer that prayer is kingdom communication. It's kingdom-focused communication. Imagine that same soldier getting on and asking for a Ferrari. He'd think he was ridiculous. What are you talking about? A Ferrari? That's not what this walkie-talkie is for, son. If that's what you're going to talk about, turn it off. As a member of the body of Christ, exercising now gospel dominion on the earth, which is what we're to do, what do you need? What supplies do you need for that job? You have to understand, when Jesus teaches them on prayer, and when he's talking about what he's talking about here, throwing mountains in the sea and cursing fig trees, he's talking about wartime, kingdom-focused communication. Prayer doesn't make sense in any other terms. You understand that? You get that? That's the context Prayer makes sense. What do you need? Ask, and it will be given to you. Remember what he taught us back in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 13. He says, Our Father, you can quote it probably, most of you, but in different translations, so it's really hard to read because you quote it in whatever translation you remember it in. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now the Lord's Prayer is often deeply dissatisfying to many Christians. Jesus says, they say, how do we pray? And he says, like this. And he gives us the most simple prayer that you could possibly ever get. I need more information, Lord. How do I talk on this walkie-talkie? He says, here it is. Look at the direction that it's focused on. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Then look at the needs that are asked for. What do you need? Let's look at the needs that are asked for. Daily bread. Forgiveness. Deliverance from evil, from temptation. He's driving us first to consider the overall war of the kingdom of God. What's at stake? It's God's name. It's God's holiness. 
That's what's at stake. That's the kingdom that you're fighting in. A kingdom where God's holiness, God's name is on the line, and you, Christian, are his representative. Congratulations. You've been drafted. You're now on the battlefield. What do you need? Now the soldier in a quiet field in the middle of the night has no idea what to ask for. And you and I, because we've mostly lived in America and we've probably mostly lived in pretty peaceful times where our lives are not under threat, we struggle in prayer. I have no idea what to ask for. This thing is so odd to me. But put that soldier on a boat storming the beaches of Normandy and suddenly his prayer problems are magically solved. I have to question what to pray for now. I know. You know why? Because the enemy is lobbing all kinds of assaults at me and I feel them tangibly. I know what they are. There's no question in my mind what I need to pray for. Magically, he understands prayer because the fight then is real to him. He automatically gets it. Now, I want you to think deeply about the tragedy of prayerlessness in the temple in the previous passage. Think about what it says. When Jesus walks into the temple where the so-called people of God, living in the so-called kingdom of God, worshiping at the so-called house of God, and they're not praying. They have apparently no needs to ask for. Does that sound like people that are in the midst of a kingdom of God war? Where they have real needs that they need God to provide? Worse than that, they've removed all prayer from the temple. Get it out. Push it aside. Do you understand a little bit of why Jesus is angry? Jesus here is establishing his kingdom. In the whole book of Matthew, in the whole Bible, he's establishing his kingdom. And his disciples are asking him how he withered this tree. He pulls his disciples in close and he's, he's saying to them, listen to me, my kingdom is being established and you are ambassadors of it. You're soldiers in my army. You're going to be engaged in spiritual war with spiritual and physical consequences that you can't possibly now know the depths of. You need to understand that as you fight, you will never lack supplies. You need only ask and trust that God will provide it. In verse 22, he says, Whatever you ask... In prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We know that Jesus prays in the garden that the cross be removed from him. But ultimately, his role in God's kingdom was to suffer the wrath of God on my behalf. That was his task. Suffer the wrath of God on my behalf. God did not remove that from him. 
nor does he give us everything we want either. Jesus recognizes this, by the way. He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He doesn't give us everything we want, but he always gives us what we need. To turn this passage into a promise of prosperity is to not actually grasp that prayer is about wartime supplies, not peacetime toys. When you look around at our country, a people who have never really faced persecution, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it junk, makes sense to us. Yeah, we can have whatever we want, right? We're in peacetime. No. It's wartime communication. So then what is Jesus calling them to? He's calling them to faith. He's calling them to trust. Not like the Jews who have an outward appearance of trust in God, but they don't have an inward reality of trust in God, of faith. He's calling them to instead an unwavering trust in God. Why? Because citizens of Christ's kingdom are going to see some awful things. They're going to experience some incredible things. As I said, most of them are going to see the temple destroyed in their lifetime, in their generation. Almost every Christian in history has seen kingdoms toppled. Many have faced direct physical persecution. He's calling them to trust in God and in that trust pray for whatever they need. What trouble are you facing in the war? Does it seem like this insurmountable mountain in your battle in the kingdom of God as you represent Him in this world as His vice regent, what obstacles do you have in your way? Do they seem like mountains? Obstacles that cannot be moved? If they really impede your progress in the kingdom of God, if they really impede your work that He has put you here to do in the kingdom of God, then ask and He'll remove them. That's what He's getting at. There's no no need I could have that He will not provide. There are plenty of wants. I will always ask Him to spare my life and the lives of those I love. Always. But sometimes that proves to be a want. But He always supplies my need. I need only trust and ask. Please understand what Jesus is getting at here is that our trust in God is on display in our prayer life. You get that? It's how you show your trust in God. 
identifying your needs and asking Him to provide a way over, around, or through. When we see tumultuous events happen in our world, we worry, but do we pray? We have no idea what our kingdom needs are because we don't know what purpose we serve in the kingdom, so we don't pray. Why would you use the walkie-talkie in peacetime? Are we just a figless tree? Lots of leaves. We have plenty of things in churches. Great sound. Incredible music. Teaching of all kinds. Podcasts of plenty. Bibles of all sorts and shapes and colors with study Bibles that pertain exactly down to the person where you are. But is our understanding of our purpose in the kingdom of God actually growing with all of those resources, with all of those leaves around us? Is it producing any fruit? Are our needs therefore becoming more apparent as we understand what our purpose is on this planet? Are we therefore turning to Him in prayer asking for supplies? Jesus is calling citizens of His kingdom to a life of fruitfulness. How can we be fruitful? How can I just be found faithful? How can I be found to be producing fruit in the kingdom of God? And we often talk about fruit as if it's strictly conversion. People that come to know Christ, that, that's fruit. Well, no doubt that is fruit, but it's not the only fruit. Jesus is calling us to a life of faith. That's what He's calling us to. That's what He's calling the disciples to. A life of faith, of unwavering trust in Christ. A life of prayer. A life of growing holiness. Your purpose in the kingdom of God is to see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, growing in you more by the day. And as you encounter enemy fire, which you will if you're growing in those things, you will encounter that as you go on mission, as you share the gospel, as you begin to serve other people around you, as you begin doing these things that we see Christ modeling for us, as we see the disciples modeling for us, as we see other Christians in our churches modeling for us, as you begin to do those things, you're going to take some enemy fire. And as you do that, your needs are going to become apparent like you're rushing the beaches of Normandy. Then you're going to be able to ask for what you need. As you think about the garden that God has put you over, perhaps it's a spouse, maybe you're a parent, teacher, engineer, minister, evangelist, doctor, salesman, whatever you are. As you serve God, as you serve His kingdom, what are you in need of? How do you need God to provide for you so that you may do your job as though you're serving God, not man? What do you need? What are you in need of that you may be a witness to those that He has put you in charge of or those that you work with? Ask. And His Word promises that if you need it, 
If that is part of your wartime directive and you need it, He will provide it without question. This is the life of fruitfulness in the kingdom of heaven. That's it. A life of growing faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray only that you would increase that you would increase the fruitfulness with which we live. That our faith, though it be tiny, would be shown to be a persevering faith. That through all the temptations and all the trials that we encounter, that it may grow and increase. That in the end, we may be found faithful. That we may hear the voice of the only one that matters say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray this in Jesus' name.